Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome back to the United States of a Movie Podcast, the movie podcast that is trying to figure out the one movie that defines each state in these United States. My name is Oli Petschke. I used to host a movie show in Asia. I'm passionate about movies, almost as passionate as my amazing co-hosts who join me once again. Ryan Sandler, welcome back to the show. Excellent to be here. And Will, producer Will, sitting in front of a huge wall of Blu-rays right now, flexing on everybody on this call. Very cool. Reporting for duty, sir. Happy to be here. Well, I am absolutely thrilled to be here because today we are mixing things up a little bit because we're talking about the state of North Carolina, but we couldn't talk about North Carolina without also inviting Her Royal Highness, the Queen of North Carolina, Beth Troutman, the former (laughs) co-host of mine from Right This Minute, TV personality, documentarian, and currently co-host of Good Morning BT with Bo Thompson and Beth Troutman on WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina. Beth Troutman, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. I'm so thrilled to join you. It's uh, so good to quote unquote see you, Ollie, and it's nice to meet you, other gentlemen as well. Um, yes, I'm the official queen of uh, of North Carolina. Well, guys, <laughs> this is actually quite, quite true because this is a really going to be a great episode because I contacted Beth last week and I said, look, how would you feel about coming on the podcast? If, if you had to pick a movie about North Carolina, what would you pick? And in the blink of an eye, she had sent me almost like an encyclopedia of movies, because it turns out Beth is quite connected to movies in North Carolina. Why don't you tell us about it, Beth? <laughs> well, um, I am passionate about movies, as, um, as uh, maybe as passionate as Ollie is, but I was born and raised here in uh, North Carolina, and uh, oddly, I worked for the TV show The West Wing. That was my first job out of college, so I got into the idea of filmmaking and things when I was working behind the scenes on that show, Uh, And then I came back to North Carolina um, to run for the U.S. House of Representatives, as, you know, one does when they're 27. And after I lost the election, uh, the governor of the state of North Carolina actually appointed me to the North Carolina Film Council. So I served on the North Carolina Film Council from 2005 until 2010 when I had to move away from the state to uh, do a show that I ended up uh, hosting with Ollie. Yeah. So there we go. Literally government appointed uh, North Carolina movie expert. Um, And what also makes this interesting, guys, and to anybody who's listening, is Beth's choices have, have opened up a conversation that we have wanted to talk about on this podcast since we came up with the idea. It's the difference between shot in and set in. Now, up until this point, we have always done movies that are set in, shot in this particular state. But in this case, two of the movies that Beth picked are shot in North Carolina, but not set in. They're absolute bangers, though. We've got the 1987 movie, Dirty Dancing, with Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey, uh, the sequel to Red Dawn, 
Um, if you guys say no, that one. <laughs> oh my God, the fact that you know that. <laughs> there's a great little bit of trivia about that. Yes, go I'll ahead. I'll get back Sorry. to that in a minute. Um, the other one is the 1992 movie Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Wes Studi, um, which honestly was basically entirely shot like an advert for North Carolina. And we <laughs> here at the podcast, we threw in Bull Durham, 1998, sorry, 1988 uh, Bull Durham with Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins, which is shot, set entirely in North Carolina. And we're going to dig into them right now to try and figure out which one of these movies was the horniest. Because these are some pretty <laughs> horny movies, guys. I was going to say, this: these three movies got progressively hornier. And then I got to laugh at the Mohicans. And I was like, this it has to be the horniest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. This is responsible for a population boom. Like in the uh, mid to late 90s. I, I, I was going to say, uh, Dirty Dancing was my sexual awakening, and I just watched this movie on Friday. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> Little bit I was going to say blur. the same thing, except the Friday part. <laughs> <laughs> Don't kink shame me. <laughs> and I should be more specific. It wasn't for Patrick Swayze or Jennifer Grey. It was for Wayne Knight. <laughs> Jerry Orbach for me, but, you know, you to go. each his own. Uh, you know what? Let's do it then. Let's jump into Dirty Dancing. Um, an absolute, absolute classic that I remember the first time I watched, I was 18 years old and my girlfriend at the time put it on and I kind of made fun of it. I wasn't really watching it. I didn't actually watch, watch it properly until about five years ago when I was like, this movie's great. <laughs> it's real. Yeah. What? No, did y'all not watch this until you were 18 or for you last Friday? I mean, <laughs> I saw this movie in the theater when I was in fifth grade. I, I, I went with my best friend at the time, Lois Ellen Davis, and we sat there kind of confused about what was happening, but we knew that it was shot here in our state. So we're like, yeah, man. But then it got real steamy and i saw it again once i got to middle school and that that is when there you go. made sense right <laughs> well, well i didn't see i didn't see this right away because i was one so <laughs> i had yeah. to uh i had to wait a bit before i could see it are you age shaming me <laughs> <laughs> not at all not at all you're you are dirty dancing shaming us right now but it does <laughs> i think at that point i was i was obsessed with top gun and days of thunder and things like that but also because i was just being a boy about things and that's kind of what mm -hmm. i mean is like this movie you think it's a certain kind of movie on the outside you're, oh it's just going to be some foofy boy girl romance this that and the other kind of movie and then you sit down and watch it and you're like wow we're really getting into to women's rights and a woman's rights yeah. twos and they're talking about freedom writers and we're talking about abortion and i'm like what i mean i watched this with my daughter about a year ago i said baby come watch this movie with me i mean baby don't Be put nice. baby in the corner you come sit with me <laughs> and um and we she was blown away by it as well it was a really great movie to watch with like a sort of like a 14 15 year old girl of just like this, bigger questions it's interesting to watch this now post Dobbs, right? Because when I saw this for the first time in the 80s and then again, over and over again in the 90s and the 2000s, this we were in the post row world. So I grew up in a time where, you know, a woman's right to choose wasn't even in question. You know, this those scenes didn't even make intuitive sense to my brain because I couldn't imagine a world where that existed. And then watching it again, because I watched it again this week, even though I know every line, it hits differently now that we're in a post Dobbs world. And especially I still live here in the South where a, a lot of the abortion bans are happening. We just signed a new law here in North Carolina. It's a pretty modern 
moderate bill, but it's at 12 weeks now, which is different than what, um, you know, what the what the rules and the laws were uh, before that. And so it hits in a strange way now watching the story of Penny unfold mm. uh, because of what we're currently experiencing. Penny, played by oh. Cynthia Rhodes, great dancer. At times I was Beth, I was like, going, God, man, she's got Beth Troutman vibes, actually. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I wish I could lift my leg that high. <laughs> Same Challenge role. accepted. Um, well, let's uh, for anyone out there that hasn't seen the movie, we'll just break it down quickly. It tells the story in 1963 of 17-year-old Frances. We don't get that until the end of the movie, but baby, everyone calls her baby. Um, her mom and dad, her dad's a cardiologist, and her sister go up to the Catskills. You know, it's a very, like, I was watching this and my wife was like, man, this is like the whitest movie ever made. (laughs) (laughs) It is is pretty white. And it's like, yeah, it's a bunch of... um, well-off people go and spend like a month or so up in the mountains and they have themselves a vacation. And while she's there, 17-year-old baby who is all about everything in the world, she's, you know, talking about people's rights and she's going to join the Peace Corps and she's all very intelligent. And then Patrick Swayze walks in and she gets frothy. (laughs) Within the first five minutes, and she goes, I'm having feelings I didn't know I could feel feelings about. <laughs> the tingles. I same. I got the same feelings. Hey, it's Patrick Swayze. If you don't get the so. tingles of Patrick Swayze, <laughs> yeah. there's something you're dead on the inside, man. She looked at him and she's like, Is that the guy from Roadhouse? I love that yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> you he could like, th- just... rip my throat out any day. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so on the surface, that you, you know, that boils it down. But what actually sort of happens is she, um, this is actually interesting enough. The story behind the making of this movie is really fascinating. And again, if you're listening and you, you want, there's a great series on Netflix called The Movies That Made Us. Um, and the first season that came out, it was talking about all of these things like it was, it was Die Hard and, and all these movies that we loved. And when we were talking at right this minute, we all came in after watching the first season and everyone admitted that Dirty Dancing was the best story. It had an incredible story of it never should have come together. And the people that were writing it, like Eleanor Bergstein, she was called Baby and she went to the Catskills and she used to dirty dance. And then the fact they got this director, Emil Ardolina, he was a documentary filmmaker. And how it all just can get. And the fact that they pick a a song that that ends up going on to win the Oscar that year (laughs) was a song that was just in a pile of tapes. And it was the last tape of all of these hundreds of tapes that they were listening to. And they go, oh, this is the song. It's almost like this movie was just meant to be. I always thought yeah. that song was like written specifically for this movie. No. It's yeah. wild. It's crazy that it's not. Yeah. 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 And they completely do that whole last scene to it, which is what, but that's, I think why it was also when you've got a documentary filmmaker who comes from a background of making dance sort of movies and things like that, that they were able to go, all right, let's just pivot. Let's do this. Let's shoot it. Let's get it. And it, it's like capturing magic. It's a magic scene. Yeah, well, it, really it, it explains, um, the documentary filmmaker explains the scenes of the feet. You know, when she's learning how to do that dance that she's going to perform um, with Patrick Swayze for the first time. And there are all of these different scenes where she, you, all you see is her white kids and you see mm-hmm. her feet messing up and then you see her suddenly it changes and she's in high heels and mm-hmm. she's starting to get the, the, the dance moves right. I mean, it tells a story in a matter of seconds with feet mm-hmm. like tarantino it's amazing yeah. but when i do it 
<laughs> but actually, it's it's there's so much that's done. You're you're nailing it, Beth. Especially just with the dance. I mean, one of the first I was just rewatching it like yesterday, and um, the first scene where babies come into that everyone's dirty dancing, and Patrick Swayze comes in, and it's the first scene where he's trying to teach her how to dirty dance. I'm like covering my face and cringing for her because she just doesn't know how to move her body. She doesn't know what she's doing, and it is just. Painfully funny as you watch her try to move her hips, and you've got at the same time you've got Patrick Swayze, who's like I don't know, made out of liquid at this point, just moving <laughs> incredibly, and it's just you watch how she grows, and then by the end of it, you know, you've got that beautiful scene where they're having that private dance and they're singing to each other, and it's just like so. She's so in touch with her body, and like you know, so is he, and they are quite literally in touch with each other's bodies. That again, it's all speaking with just the way people are moving and dancing and the feet and everything. It's funny because it kind of follows um, almost like a martial arts film where you see the beginner starting off like really rigid, not understanding it. And by the end, you know, really becoming a master of like what she's doing. I, so that was on my mind as I was watching it. Yeah, is, my only complaint this is, was this movie needed more karate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> always. And, and it's also <laughs> It's also amazing when you think of like how Patrick Swayze is moving in the film when you realize his knee is like mm. gone. Like yes. he is like his knee is just totally destroyed and he is like killing himself for this movie. That famous jump, that famous slow motion jump where he jumps off the stage at the end again. Yeah. He's uh, you get into the behind the scenes. He's like, I got one more in me, you know, but that's a Texas boy <laughs> for you right there. He's like, you know, he's a former <laughs> Texas, former football player. He's like, I can do this. But like, he's just, um, he's so masculine. You know, we talked about yeah. we were talking about Point Break. You know, it's just it's mm-hmm. something about Patrick Swayze that even dudes are like, oh, man, that guy's cool. Well, and think about that in the course of this film. He is dancing, ballroom dancing and doing, you know, like the line dance that he does at the end and during Time of My Life and all of the other quote unquote dirty dancers come behind him and they're dancing down the aisle. Like, think about all of those moves and think about anybody else doing that. Like, he makes ballroom dancing and you know spinning around on his knees and pirouetting look incredibly manly and those are things that's a hard thing to accomplish like he makes it look not only effortless but insanely sexy and masculine and it's not something that you um i don't know you don't see those two things juxtaposed Mm. often like the bit where patrick like right towards the end as the music the credits start rolling where he just picks baby up and it's just yeah, and I think all the women are like, oh wow, oh oh wow. I know. I, I would, and I, I went like, oh my 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 back. I'd heard that he he's su- he was such a good dancer that he had to actually tone it down a bit for this movie to not seem so professional, like he just worked at these resorts. Is that oh, true? Man. That, oh. that would honestly make sense to me just by like the way he pirouettes, the way he it's moves. The guy, is, the guy is like inch perfect. It is, uh, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> He's classically trained. His um, his wife uh, was also a, a classically trained, um, or is, she's, uh, she's still with us, a classically trained dancer, and she was often his dance partner. And mm-hmm. I mean, he is a, a full-on professional dancer. Now, there's a... Um, there's a huge sort of like, you know, the, the big through line of this is the relationship with um, Baby and her dad and, you know, Baby growing up and becoming a young woman. And um, something that, I, you know, I've been watching movies and obsessing about movies since I was a kid. And it, what's really interesting to me is movies that hit different um, now that I'm a dad 
and movies that hit different now that I'm grown up. Um, so it's like, oh, you know, those movies you used to watch where you're rooting for the kids and then you're watching it as an adult going, those kids are stupid. I'm on the parents' yeah. side. But in this particular <laughs> case, it's watching it as the dad of a 15-year-old daughter and just watching how it grows because it's a beautiful, it's done so well. That, so what happens is baby, uh, so the other professional dancer we were talking about, um, she's pregnant. And she, of course, it, it's a time where she, she can't get um, an abortion. She has to go and get a backstreet abortion. It all goes wrong. And baby runs to her dad and sort of says, you know, first of all, goes, dad, I need some money. Um, and I can't tell you why. $250, which is about $10 billion in today's money. And um, <laughs> yeah. The abortion goes wrong, and then she runs off and gets her dad, who then comes and helps. But it kind of changes the way her dad sees baby, and it sort of creates this rift that sort of carries through the film and to uh, towards the end. And um, you know, what is it like, you know, Beth, watching that, you know, as as a you know as a woman, you know, when you watched it when you were younger, how did that sort of scene hit the whole thing with the dad, the dynamic with the dad? Because it hits me big time. Well, I bet it probably, I mean, I'm sure since you are the uh, father of a daughter who is 15, who is just two years away from being baby's age, you know, when when I saw it when I was young, you're thinking about young love. And I was thinking about my, my first love and, you know, wanting to hold hands and you just have this unimaginable, uh, you know, attraction to your first love, right? Even, even now you can probably conjure up what that felt like when you first had that first attraction to whoever that first person was. But if you think about it from the standpoint of the father and you think about how young she is and how much older this man is and you know his daughter who wanted to be in the peace corps and was incredibly idealistic and suddenly she's uh helping with an abortion and and he thinks that she's having an affair with this guy that she, that he thinks got the uh the other dancer pregnant meanwhile he's only her dance partner and it turns out you know spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen dirty dancing you know but it turns out the guy who got her pregnant is the guy her the father's other daughter yeah is thinking about sleeping with. And so there's this whole kind of sexual awakening between both daughters with, um, it, you know, that's happening within like culture wars and how we think about like our socioeconomic, um, uh, the socioeconomic ladder, you know, he doesn't believe that this guy who's uh, working at uh, at Kellerman's, who was also about to go to Yale Medical School yeah. and is going to be a doctor, that he couldn't be the bad guy in this scenario, but the the um, guy from the the poor background, who's just quote unquote just a dancer, is the one who, of course, he wears a black leather jacket. Of course, you know he got this girl in trouble and isn't helping take care of her. And it's all of those stereotypes that we think about, all of those culture war, and it, and it's funny because we're kind of we still do all of this stuff. You know, we prejudge people based on what our um, preconceived notions are about class, about education, about race, about gender. You know, all of these things, unfortunately, more than 30 years later, are still playing a huge part of the conversation. So as you watch the father, um, you know, battle this idea of the deflowering of his daughter or, or the image of his daughter changing, but then you watch that scene that happens in the gazebo, you know, where she's really yeah. emotional and she's like, but dad, you know, I'm disappointed too. And he doesn't say anything or doesn't say much. And he's got the tears. And at the end, when he finds out that, uh, you know, the other Yale medical school guy is the one, you have this moment of growth where he goes up to Johnny, to Patrick Swayze and says, you know, when I'm wrong, 
I say I'm wrong. And you see this kind of um, lifelong built up perspective break. And you see him suddenly admiring his daughter and admiring not only her courage, but her ability to see the good in people that he couldn't see. And there's so much beauty in that because I think, you know, I'm I'm not a parent, but I think that that's the thing that that uh, youth can teach us is we get kind of hardened in our ways. And sometimes people get hardened in their hearts as, as we age and the, the idealism of youth can sometimes and should, I think, open us up to a different way of thinking about the world. And we see all of that happen in a movie about dancing. Yeah, this is, we're talking, <laughs> everything we're just talking about, Annika, guys, we're talking about dirty dancing. And this is what you can get into. <laughs> But those scenes, you're nailing it. It's Jerry Orbach, right, guys? That's the guy. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, the, yes, it's the, the gazebo scene and then the dancing scene. Are hit, the ones that hit as a dad. That I'm watching with Tia, I go, man, I hope I can be an understanding dad. And like you're saying, it's all on his face. You know, he's crying in the gazebo scene. Then it's that you see on his face when she's dancing, when he lifts her up towards the end, that like on his face, he's like, wow, I never saw my daughter, you know, like this. I'm seeing my, the young lady instead of this, this little girl. And um, yeah, that's the bit. That's the bit as a dad. Those are the scenes that absolutely hit hard for me. I'm like, okay, I'm just holding it together right now. (laughs) (laughs) But this movie is so horny. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. Jennifer Grey plays. She's in the dirty dancing scene, watching everybody else dance. Plays the the sort of coquettish kind of like you know. It's it's. All again, her acting in that is like, I don't understand, but I think I like this. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Compared yeah, to when she's in in uh, Ferris Bueller with Charlie Sheen's character. It's such a different like dynamic entirely. You know, there's just like a, a flagpole. She's like such a strong, confident badass. And here she's like really growing into herself and well, figuring it all out. She's a strong, confident badass in Ferris Bueller. But after 10 right. minutes with Charlie Sheen, she turns into a complete sopping yeah. mess by the end of it right but she really does have yeah she has fantastic range uh as an actor like um yeah going back to ferris bueller she uh i she seems like she's like 10 years older in that movie than she is in dirty dancing and that movie came out first like she is just incredible she's great i mean let's talk like you know what's this was i think many people's first first outing with with Jennifer Grey, you know, it was when I was watching Red Dawn later in life that I'm like, everyone's in this movie. By the way, we're mm-hmm. definitely going to be doing Red Dawn when we get to Colorado. But uh, Chris Hemsworth <laughs> one, <laughs> I love. Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> but yeah, but like we're watching it, and it, my missus comes in, and we're just watching her kill it, and how cute she is in her outfits and her dancing and her goofiness and her her curls and her everything else. And then my missus, we're just like everyone saying, "Man, why did she get like plastic surgery?" That for me is like that one thing. I'm like, she was perfect, just perfect. Yeah. The way she isn't worked. it funny that we all think of that. That we all think yeah. of how how, and apparently she was just getting like, like, or she thought that she she thought she was getting a different kind of surgery than what happened, and the surgeon kind of botched and changed her entire uh, oh. face <laughs> to a point where she was unrecognizable, which I, I became a big thing when she was on um, the series Friends. You know, she was say- a guest star as Jennifer Aniston's like best friend, and and the show was like promoting, promoting, promoting that Jennifer Grey was going to make this huge appearance on Friends, and then she comes out and no one recognized her, and it became this kind of emotional 
almost traumatic thing for uh, for Jennifer Grey. And she, I mean, she ended up taking it in stride and kind of becoming, she jokes about it later in life, you know, when she was the winner of Dancing with the Stars and, you know, all of that stuff. But I know she just had the perfect, adorable uh, face in her. I, I loved her acting in this film because as a woman, you know, thinking about the first um, experiences of really, really falling for someone and being, you know, I grew up in the South. I grew up in a very um, like a Southern Baptist family. And I was uh, I wasn't sheltered. I just made very, um, very good girl decisions, you know, through the course of my young life and what it's like when you first start experiencing love and you first start understanding that your body has feelings and all of this like complexity comes along she plays that mm -hmm. so insanely perfectly that you forget that this whole thing is not a documentary yeah <laughs> it's not it, real a hundred percent like um well interesting enough a lot of people didn't discover this till later but jennifer gray and patrick swayze did not get on they were there was some carryover from Red Dawn. In fact, there's some great behind the scenes of them screen testing together. And there is some real like, oh man, like he is like calling her a bitch and like just come on, just do a bitch. And they're just but then at the same time, they always say there's a thin line between love and hate. Cause that really portrays, it comes through on screen as like they're kind of into each other. But apparently behind the scenes it's like real frustration. Like real but frustration. But then he, like, wanted he specifically wanted her in this movie, like post post Red Dawn, you know. Post Red Dawn, that was you guys already knew my little bit of trivia. That's what I was going to tell. Like, he was the one who said that this would be a great idea, having worked with her in Red Dawn, and then she was the one who thought, I don't know if I can do this because she's she claims that he was really difficult to work with in that film, oh, and man. then but it it generates unreal chemistry oh and you God. can't fake that stuff if you've seen no. love movies and romantic movies with people who don't have real chemistry and you're like there's no way there's no yes. way that those people are going to be together it it ruins a film even if the film yeah. is brilliantly written but this like their chemistry you buy every second of it every second oh yeah yeah it felt so natural between the two of them like the, the, all that tension that was built up in red dawn like spilled over to this and all kind of just went away and it, i can't picture from, anyone else together we went from cold water piping hot <laughs> it was like, yeah you know that shot where he's, he's running his hand down her arm and she keeps oh. cracking up and he's getting oh, frustrated that is the documentary filmmaker saying roll the camera because she's just getting the giggles because it's ticklish Patrick Swayze's just real frustrated in that scene because she can't hold yeah. it together for this shot. And it's maybe the best bit of the whole movie. Yeah. And that's yeah. why getting a documentary yeah. filmmaker to make a film, it just totally worked. All of his was, frustrations, like with her, you know, being an amateur, have, like the situation, the circumstances, like he needs her to perform and he needs her to get this and he's not there to play around. Like there's so many stakes riding on this one performance at a hotel down the road right. and, and he's like you really feel frustrated for him and you feel her frustration and not being able to get it with everything that's going on and it just felt so real it was funny to get uh i saw an interview one time with leah thompson from back to the future who was in red dawn with both of them and she talked about seeing this movie and how like hilarious it was for her to watch because she was just like I just remember them going at each other, like just hating each other the whole time. 
And so she's like, I watched this movie and I was just cracking up. I'm like, oh my God, they just hate each other. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> now let's get into sort of the North Carolina of it. Um, big part of it was shot. Um, any of the sort of like the behind the scenes, like with the, the, um, with the staff was shot in Virginia. But the big sort of part of it was shot, um, where was it? You know this one, don't you? Lake somewhere or other. Yes, it's Lake Lure, uh, North Carolina, which is um, just outside of Asheville. And the, here, the two films that, two of the films that we chose were kind of shot all in the same area. Last of Mohicans is also shot in this same, like Lake Lure area, Chimney Rock. They're all right there close together. Um, but it was shot at a, a place called Camp Okanichi. Camp Okanichi was part of like the where all of the staff cabins were. That was that location. Um, also, the iconic steps that she dances down and walks the watermelon up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in uh, in the Lake Lure area as well. Um, also, when they dance at the beautiful scene where it was raining and they decide to get out and go dance and they're dancing on that log, you know, over the creek. Um to the hey hey baby mm. the the that whole thing was shot in um in Lake Lure as well but it's the Lake Lure chimney rock the outdoor stuff even the um like the when she goes to her dad and he's on the golf course and asks for the two hundred and fifty dollars for the for the abortion for Penny um he's playing in what looks like the uh, a putting green of a place to practice it's actually the sixteenth hole at a golf course resort called Rumbling Bald on Lake Lure which it's actually on Lake Lure and the the other little weird cool bit of trivia my family actually has a, a house at Rumbling Bald on that like golf course um so it's so much fun to go up there and oh, see it, it in Lake Lure they have so embraced the fact that um, dirty dancing is part of their city. They yearly have a dirty dancing festival in Lake Lure, which this is why we have to have the debate about set in versus shot in because Interesting. North Carolina has so embraced dirty dancing that there is a an annual dirty dancing festival in Lake Lure. And even if you go to the Visit North Carolina um uh, webpage, you can go to like the Dirty Dancing tour, and you can you know <laughs> visit places now, that. Now, were now, Beth, how many times have you gone to that tour? <laughs> I have not actually. I've I've created my own what? tour, so if anyone wants to come along, I'll just take you to Lake Lure. Um, but like even the uh, the the ballroom scene where they do the iconic the the lift scene and where she, he puts baby in a corner, where Jerry Orbach puts baby in a corner, that is a gymnasium, also at a camp in um north carolina it was like a boys camp i think um i think i wrote i wrote this one down because i did it was like a chimney rock camp for boys or something and there was a gym uh in that area and it has since burned down but they salvaged the floor and they put the floor in the lake lure inn and spa so you can go like walk on the floor where um baby and 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 johnny did their iconic uh iconic dance scene that's that, incredible. That dirty dancing festival, I kind of feel like everyone's dressed as baby and everyone's sitting in the corner. Everybody. And everyone's sitting <laughs> in the corner. No one's sitting in the middle. <laughs> everyone's arguing over like who we... gets to do the lift. Yes. <laughs> Don't you feel like we all kind of need to go now? Yes. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. It's basically like I told you guys. I said Beth is like, she's going to be perfect for North Carolina. <laughs> it's like you're a, a tour guide. Um, we're going to move on. That's, let's, let's, because you mentioned Last of the Mohicans. Um, let's bounce over to that one. Now, us us fellas are massive Michael Mann fans. We've already had heat uh, on on the podcast when we were talking about California. Um, 
And this is the the least Michael Mann Michael Mann movie I've ever seen, and is also one of the best Michael Mann movies I have ever seen. From the first ten seconds, I was on board. As soon as that score kicks in, mm. you just you know you're in for this ride. I was immediately texting the guys, going, "Oh my god, name another movie that comes out this hard in the first five seconds." This movie, listen before it is amazing. I love this movie. It is incredible. Yeah, I, yeah and this is like the one Michael Mann movie in my blind spot that I'd never seen. Because when it came out in, what did you say, 92? 92. I, was, I yep. was like nine years old. So this, this to me was the type of movie that was like almost, it would be assigned to you in social studies. Like you have to watch this and then we'll do a report <laughs> on it. So it just, it just never clicked with me when I was younger. So I just never got around to seeing it. And you're right. It's, I said this last night. It was like, it, 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 this doesn't feel like a Michael Mann movie at all. Compared to his like thrillers, his noirs, or his like, his early movies, The Keep, for example. But <laughs> man, this movie ruled. Yeah, well, yeah. So good. tell tell me so more good. about you've just seen it for the first time. Give me some more yeah. of your visceral reactions. I want to hear this. I mean, it had like this this almost Barry Lyndon type of look and feel to it. Like it just mm-hmm. it was just unbelievable. I mean, like you said, this the soundtrack, the dressing, and. Daniel Day-Lewis is so good in it. Like, he should be in more movies, guys. <laughs> He's got a future. I think, he should get I think, into acting, yeah, that yeah. guy. I reckon yeah, he yeah. could do well. Will is kind of okay at it. Yeah, I've seen it a bunch of times. Like, it was one of my dad's favorite movies. And so... I, Such I've a dad movie. <laughs> yes. Oh, very much. Yeah, I've seen this like a dozen times. I love it. Um, his uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, his adopted father in this movie, the native father, his like... His axe, like his tomahawk weapon, is oh, man. so cool. It's one of my favorite movie weapons ever. It's amazing. But, like, yeah, from top down, everything about this movie is amazing. I mean, the score alone feels like on the level of a Lord of the Rings score, you know, but about yeah, the American it's frontier. It's so good. Um, and, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Barry Lyndon because one of the things I've noticed about the look of this film is uh, it's all practical lighting. For both those movies. Yes. Like when they're irritate, indoors. Right? Yeah. And when yeah. they're indoors, it's kind of dark because all they've got so is those candlelight. And I thought I was, I watched it on Voodoo. I thought I was going crazy. I had to adjust my TV settings because it was so dark. I couldn't see a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nuts. But very much like Barry Lyndon, they thought yeah. about like, this is how it would be lit. It wouldn't, you know, yeah. there wouldn't be any extra lighting. And so that really gives it a distinct look. Mm. It's um, like the Revenant. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yes. You, yeah. How the Revenant was all shot out there. And that's the thing, you, you, you're nailing it. And that's why I think this is going to get such an interesting debate about the North Carolina of it, because it's almost like the North Carolina tourism industry um, sponsored <laughs> like the last thing. I'm just oh watching God. this movie and I'm shouting to my wife going, North Carolina is gorgeous. This is ridiculous. Look at all these hills and mountains and waterfalls. <laughs> I got to get to that waterfall. <laughs> uh, yeah. Beth, go for and it, Beth. Gentlemen- I know what you going to say. You can get to that waterfall. It is at Chimney Rock State Park, and you can hike right to it. My husband and I were there just a couple of months ago. You hike right to it. You're the end, that waterfall scene, you know, where everybody's, where the, the sister jumps off the, the cliff and that whole dramatic moment happens. Yeah, that, you can you can hike right up to that waterfall. All of that is um, Chimney Rock You can Rock go State visit Park. her body. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
Right. Um, still there. <laughs> t- now that we've spoiled the ending, I'll tell anyone that hasn't seen this yeah. movie what the movie's about. <laughs> Spoiler alert, guys. If you want to know what happens, the sister dies. <laughs> it's uh, set during the uh, French and Indian War. Uh, it's set in northern New York or around the sort of the colonies kind of area. And it tells the story. Yeah, the Hudson River. There you yeah. go. Tells the story of two sisters, um, Madeline Stowe being one of them, who have been targeted in a way by the greatest villain in in like a great oh. villain. Wes Studi should have won awards for Magua because that's yeah. that is incredible. Um and essentially they get intercepted um by Daniel Day Lewis, who is the adopted son of uh, a Mohican elder. Um he's got a sort of a half-brother as well and they say that we will escort you to Fort William Henry, I believe. Um and that's it. Basically, Madeline Stowe kind of gets the hots for Hawkeye. Hawkeye gets the hots for her. Um, but it is also at the same time just this sweeping historical epic um, with this sort of undercurrent of romance uh, to it as well. I mean, look, the bit that really got me, you're talking about all the, uh, the lighting, Will, was when yep. they're approaching the fort and you, oh. you approach it from the distance and the, the cannons are going off in the, in the background. And you're just seeing these flashes of light. And then as you get closer, and I was just, again, getting into the, how did you make this movie? How did you <laughs> make this movie? Look at all those cannons and extras and costumes and, and explosions and everything else in between and the muskets and the amount of training. I'm like, I can't even begin. Where did you begin making this movie? A panic and, and, attack, probably. And, and why, like, Michael Mann, as the director for this, and Will, maybe you can answer that, but it's, he seems like such a peculiar choice. Like, what was he coming yeah. off of to do this? It's... <laughs> well, I think, uh, so he was a fan of the books, um, and the author who wrote this, I'm going to forget the author's name off the top of my head, but... So he had Fenimore written that, Cooper. Yes, yes, Fenimore Cooper. He, um, he, has he had written, like... He was like, I forgot, but Fenimore yeah. Cooper is his last name. James Fenimore Cooper. There James Fenimore Cooper. There you go. Um, he uh, he had written like five of these novels, and Michael Mann was a fan of this one. Um, but he and he had seen there was an original Last of the Weekends in like the nineteen thirties, um, and he was inspired by that. But one thing he was really wanted to get across was a, a better portrayal of the Native Americans, but uh, also kind of get into more of the nuance of what their politics were like um, because there are many different tribes represented in this film and they all have different goals. They have different motivations. And uh, he felt that was really important to get across. We did. I think he nailed it. I mean, cause you're sort of yeah. seeing how some are in, on, you know, in bed with the French, some are in bed with the English, some are just kind of out for themselves. I think the only part about it that's not realistic is there's no such thing as a Mohican. <laughs> no, no, there, there is, what? there is, <laughs> there is a Mohican tribe. I don't know. I don't think they're the ones represented in this movie. But there's only fifteen hundred of them left, unfortunately. Yeah, it was so something like it's. It's not quite Mohican. It's very close. Yeah, to it. it's like a mishearing and a misspelling kind of thing. <laughs> right. Which, when you really think about what uh, Michael Mann was attempting to do with the relationships with the Native Americans and the French and the British, and then you see, you know, you fast forward to what we ultimately know happened to a great deal of those tribes and and what um, life uh, became like with, you know, Manifest Destiny and the Trail of Tears. And you you really start thinking about... um, here are these people in different tribes who were trusting uh, different factions from a, a civilization yeah. that wasn't uh, initially here that, that 
that took over. Yeah, I, what I like about this, you see the cover and it's Daniel Day-Lewis looking badass and it says The Last of the Mohicans and it kind of gives you the same feeling when you see Tom Cruise on the cover of The Last Samurai. And, um, you know, and yeah. it's like, oh, you're thinking it's going to be white guy fixes everything. And right. like, that's what not. I thought. That's what I thought it was going to be. Right. I went into this movie with like the, that preconceived notion because that's what I thought this movie was all of these years, having never seen it. I'm like, oh, it's the same story as The Last Samurai or an Avatar or a Fern Gully. Like this guy comes <laughs> in, he's an outsider. They accept him. He's got to fight the people he was with before and bing, bang, boom. Eh, you know, it ends. But it's very, it's very not that. And like, you know, it's the thing is my wife hates this movie. She loves it, but she hates it because my wife, she feels pain from for real things that happen. You know, you can, you can make up an imaginary people on an imaginary planet and cause horrors to happen. And she's like, cool. But if you make her watch sort of something real, historical, like for her, she can't watch the end of the movie, uh, the bit where the British officer who's been kind of a bit of an antagonist in a way, Duncan. Get, put me instead, saves Mal- Madeline Stowe's yeah. character and then starts getting burned alive. And my wife is, again, shouting from the next room going, this is why I don't watch this movie. This scene <laughs> is burned into my memory. And I'm like, it's not as bad. You watch it, yeah. it's only a few, like it's, but I think it's the younger her and it's also what's going on in your head. It's kind of like the Jaws thing. It's always worse mm-hmm. what you're not seeing and what your right. imagination does. But that's pretty, I mean, there are certain scenes that are full on because I saw this at about 14 and I always remember Magua cutting the heart out. Yes. That is, that is the one thing that I remember as a kid made me feel like, oh, this is. But you don't even really see it. Like, no, the, you don't. The way the violence is portrayed is, you're right. That's the like, thing, because in my see. head, it was like, it's like the ear being cut off in Reservoir Dogs. You're convinced you see it happen. Mm-hmm. But when you watch mm-hmm. it again, you're like, oh, it happens off camera. Yeah. But stuff like that is always 10 times worse. Well, and with yeah. that, it's because he predicts it. You know, he says that that's what he's going to do yeah, yeah. with that man. And so you yeah. start thinking about it earlier in the movie. But the scene um, where Duncan is burned, I think that that is one of the most pivotal moments of the entire film. It's the this um, moment of of grace and humanity from Daniel Day-Lewis's character. Because even though this guy had been this antagonistic character who, um, you know, you didn't you didn't love the yep. way he was treating Madeline Stowe. You, and, but yet your heart is breaking because he has just sacrificed himself. And Daniel Day-Lewis is like, wait a minute, I was supposed to sacri- sacrifice myself. And then he turns and shoots him. You yeah, know, yeah. he like What's has that moment yeah. where he keeps it. He keeps him from pain. And that that is the part of the movie yeah. that just breaks me. It oh. just mm-hmm. it's him. Oh, you think now imagine he, now, uh, now imagine he missed because he's only got one bullet. And, he's like, <laughs> oh, and then it takes 45 minutes. Although my one <laughs> talking about the shooting. My one criticism of the movie, because my dad was a huge black powder uh, gun enthusiast, so I've fired a lot of black powder rifles, where Hawkeye is just running around, like, double fisting, like, firing them, loading them on the run. I'm like, I... Will, Look, that's, have you that's, seen that's, the documentary film RRR? This kind of stuff is real. Well, that, The first that thing I that. thought of when he, when he picked up the second rifle, I'm like, yes, is he going to get on someone's shoulders? He's get on someone's shoulders. <laughs> that would have been great. But that, that Beth, we're going to pause part. for one second. Beth, have yeah. you seen the movie RRR? <laughs> no. Okay, you, it is a three-hour-long 
Bollywood superhero romantic historical drama. It is everything, and it's one of the best movies ever made. It is on Netflix. You should watch it, and you're going to love it. It is okay. incredible. Tipped arrows. Yeah. That's all I'll say. Grenade tipped arrows. It is it's okay. Because it was the highlight of the Oscars is when they came out and did that. Every yes. every movie needs to have a dance number like R R R in the middle. Yep. I remember that scene. The guys coming out and doing the whole. You know, uh-huh. it was oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Wait, wait until you see the movie. I mean, honestly, don't watch the movie. I'm coming to North Carolina and we're going to watch it together. Well, it's you're going to be here in like three weeks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Will, like, you know, you were saying it with the Black Powder stuff. I can get that. But then also, yeah. like, Beth, it is you were cool, saying that, that. Oh, very cool. But you're saying that scene yeah. that broke you. But then the very next scene, we get the unbelievably handsome half-brother of Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, he is so good looking. He goes chasing down. It doesn't end well for him. Then Madeline Stowe's sister's like, all right, I'm going to kill myself and jump off the the, the yeah. waterfall. So you're like, going, oh, my God. So it's just I, getting worse I, and worse I, and I worse. Got to, I got to that scene and, like, what was her reasoning behind that? Did she just, she's like, well, I'm out. She just had no I mean, recourse. Like, she couldn't do anything. Like, whatever, whatever fate she was facing with, you know, that try, it was going to be worse yeah. than right. just taking that step, Fair. which really... Yeah. Oh, that's a hard scene to watch. And yeah, all with really, that score, all with that song going at the same time. And it is, that's whenever that song plays, that whole scene is playing in my head. And then yeah. you get oh. the uh, the pain on the father's face when he sees his son. And then like, you, you honestly mm-hmm. don't know where it's going. Cause you're like, well, yeah. we've just seen three characters die. We've only got two left and they're grossly outnumbered. What's going to happen? And then the dad just goes on a John Wickian style revenge. Just like, oh, just one after when the he, other. And when, you're like, this is amazing. When he popped up in this movie, I was like, that's the shaman from Natural Born Killers. I, oh like, I remember God. seeing him in this. I was like, oh, that's so cool. oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. I was like, where do we know him from? Just that. Just realize that. <laughs> but then it's also happening in one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. It, yeah. All of that, mm-hmm. they're shooting it on the edge of the cliff. Were you having moments thinking, wow, that, that extra is walking just five feet away <laughs> that, from a That hike piece. looks incredible, whatever. Like, and, and so to your point, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, I, when I saw this scene specifically, I was like, this must have been an absolute nightmare to film. Yeah. Like getting all this gear up there and having all these actors and extras, it must have been insane. They have great uh, Chimney Rock State Park, which is where um, a lot of this was shot. They they do have great roadways and even um, an elevator that is inside uh, the the rock <laughs> that you can Whoa. get up to really? where okay. um, the Chimney oh. Rock itself actually is. There's this uh, there's this great kind of. And it was built originally to uh, go up to this kind of hotel in restaurant that overlooked the Blue Ridge Mountains, which this entire thing is um, the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's the Biltmore Estate, which, you know, that toward the beginning of the movie, you know, when the caravan, they go marching across that beautiful bridge with the still yeah. water. Oh, and my God. Shot. Stunning. Oh. Stunning. It's, it's my favorite shot of the entire movie that where the, really, the water yeah. is so still that it's mirrored. The the bridge is mirrored. That's a bridge that you can still go over. It's at, it's on the Biltmore estate, which was um, like the country house. And if, when you see this thing, it's insane. It's the country mm. house, quote unquote, of the, uh, the Vanderbilt family that was built wow. here. And it's this beautiful um, space, but that bridge is, is right there. Incredible. 
Oh, and the fort, the fort itself, the Fort William Henry, they built that. I mean, Michael Mann and the set designers had that built on the edge of the Pisgah National Forest here just to have that whole thing so that they could film all of those incredible scenes with the cannons and the fire. So they went to this beautiful state park here and they erected that entire uh, fort to film um, all of those the, the great like battle scenes that happened but it looks functioning i think like you know because yeah. they're shooting inside the fort they're shooting outside yeah. the fort i think there is only one scene in the entire movie that i think takes place on some sort of soundstage or something which is the when they're underneath the waterfall because that that can't have been real there's no way to have shot like you know it can't yeah. i i it can't have it felt, been. <laughs> it, it felt real to me <laughs> it did but the, i'm saying yeah. again there's no way there's no way they're doing that for real. That's got to be something set up to so that the water just cascades over. And you've got, again, they're still doing it with the light. You've got the flickering moonlight oh. that's coming through the water. And you've got the, that's yeah, see, let's face Oof. the picture. I want to know where they shot that because yeah. I don't think that yeah. was real. I actually, let me let me check on that because I, I can imagine that actually being something that is yeah. uh, real because we have all kinds of really cool waterfalls and um, fun stuff. The shot, very, the shot right before it, where you see them walking down to go behind the waterfall, that waterfall is not real, or it's a it's a composite shot. I remember that was the first time I go, oh, there's a composite shot. For the first time in the movie, I realized that wasn't all just being done in the lens. So that's the only time. But yeah, I mean, it's it's apart from that, like 99% of this movie is, I mean, the guys, the the lakes, the 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 everything, the everything of this movie is is amazing. That's when I was watching it, going, okay. I'm now really interested in this whole shot in setting thing because upon finishing Last of the Mohicans, I was going to be like, I'm going to have a really hard time arguing against Last of the Mohicans mm-hmm. being yeah. maybe the most North Carolina movie ever made. Well, we always say on this podcast, it's, you know, it's which has, which, which movie feels like the most safe. I don't think it really matters if it's shot there, though it does help, but Mm-hmm. Which hat? Which hat? Which is the most evocative that makes you feel like you're in that state? Yeah, I'm 100. percent So while we are again talking about how you know Last of Mohicans, it won the uh, it won the Oscar for best sound. Then we've got uh, Dirty Dancing won the Oscar for best song. Uh, let's move on to Bull Durham, which was before nominated. we move on to Bull Durham. I have a bit of trivia. Oh, Bruce, trivia! Bring it on. Because I I didn't I didn't know for sure. Um, Bridal Veil Falls in DuPont State Park, North Carolina. You can get behind the waterfall in the cave. (laughs) Nicely. With a picture. Hello. Dude, Troutman, you're going to have to be on every episode. This is amazing. Uh, That's (laughs) awesome. That was real time. That was real time research, guys. That was awesomely done. Great job. Um, Yeah, so the the, the 1988 movie, um, Bull Durham, uh, which is not about a character called Bull Durham, right? <laughs> As you discovered. Um, but is the, uh, it's, it's shot in Durham, North Carolina, about um, a triple-A baseball team in uh, Durham, North Carolina. It's Ron Shelton is the guy that wrote and directed it. Um, it felt very Tin Cup, and then I realized it's the same director as Tin Cup. I was going to say, movie. It, it felt like Major League, but Minor League. <laughs> <laughs> but, so let's get into this. This is a Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins movie. Um, and it is from minute one. Horny. Horny, mm-hmm. horny, horny. Mm-hmm. It is entirely oh my God. screwing 
left, right, and center. Uh, and it's yep. just, it's a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It's just straight up people wanting to screw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But also, what a movie. So, um, Bethels, have you, are you familiar with, with Bull Durham? Well, yes, absolutely. And the reason that it is called Bull Durham, it is not, in fact, about a person um, <laughs> named Bull Durham. The okay, we don't need to keep throwing it in my face. <laughs> the, uh, the, the team is obviously called the Durham Bulls, but they are called the Durham Bulls because the nickname of Bull Durham has been around in Durham, North Carolina, since 1874. There was a tobacco company that was called W.T. Blackwell and & Company, and they called their tobacco product. It was Bull Durham tobacco. And the, the city has had the nickname since, um, the, since then. And that was why the baseball team is called the Durham Bulls, mm. uh, because of that Bull Durham nickname. So, wow. yeah, let's like get into this because <laughs> now while, while last Mohicans is, you know, just about every shot, everything is a painting and it's all North Carolina in the background. Bull Durham is a very similar approach to being shot inside the city. You get those great sort of shots of the people walking in from the town. You get people walking into the ballpark. You get the accents, the radio commentators, the people, Susan Sarandon's accent, everything else in between. It is just dripping with North Carolina, but a different kind, a more modern take on North Carolina, right? It's like when we were discussing the differences between like what made... Giant and Friday Night Lights. It's got that same kind of. Mm-hmm. You've got this historical epic that that represents you know a period in time, and then you've got this slice of life, small town, you know, feel, like heart and soul type of feel. So, yeah. Beth, how did it feel like representative voice? You know, like is, as someone who you know you are you live in Charlotte, do you not? Um, I live in Charlotte. Yes. Yeah. So you know, just talk about like did it did it sit right with you? Were people talking right, acting right? How was it? Well, I uh, I went to school at UNC Chapel Hill, which is right down the street from Durham. And I, I took a religion class at uh, Duke University, which is in Durham. Um, so I spent time in Durham. And it, it does a beautiful job of showcasing the small town minor league athletic parks. You know, the 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 stadium that they film a lot of, of Bull Durham in uh, was built in 1939 and you get to see and feel what that historic stadium was like, but they also shot in the more, the more modern um, uh, baseball stadium there that was built in the nineties. The I think it was built in 1994 and that's where the actual hit the bull um, sign oh, yeah. is. That's real. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I did love that they brought those aspects into it. I've always a little bit disliked, uh, the accent that people use for North Carolina that isn't quite the North Carolina accent. It's they sometimes like Susan Sarandon's accent sounds more like Southern Georgia to me. Mm-hmm. There's a difference in regions when it comes to the Southern accent. And I feel like in movies, they get the North Carolina accent a little bit wrong. Um, so that always, that always gets me. We're not quite, there are certainly Southern accents that are, that are deep in parts of North Carolina. I obviously have a, a Southern accent to a degree, but, what? um, what, <laughs> but they, uh, the, that part of it is a little strange, but the, um, I love when they do the road trip, they actually did film at our local baseball, um, stadiums in Greensboro and Winston-Salem and Asheville and, uh, you know, the, the, the little railroad bridge that they go under, like that's a, a, a kind of famous place that uh, isn't tall enough for a lot of trucks to get under and things. And everybody knows not to go under that bridge. If you're driving, you know, a semi truck or mm-hmm. whatever, but, uh, they, they did a really great job of capturing 
what Durham, North Carolina feels like, like the pool hall, that's a real place. It's called the green room. Um, and where he has that, you know, billiards thing with, uh, when Newt comes in and they're having this kind of whole yeah. peeing on each other, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not peeing on each other, but you know, like a, a contest. Yeah. You're just in territory, but you've got you've yeah. gotten very much into water play. Yeah. <laughs> a, a classic dick, a, a classic dick measuring contest. Yeah. <laughs> you said it. There you go. There you go. And then um, the house that uh, that Annie is supposed to live in—that's a historic home. It's called the James Manning oh, wow. Home. Oh, cool. And it was built uh, right around the turn of this the 1800s. Uh, so it actually exists. It's on. Um, I think it's North Magnum Street in Durham. So when you see, when you're from here and you see the use of the pool hall and the use of uh, the the house and the the interiors from the stadium and all of that feels incredibly nostalgic and very uh, true because, you know, the extras were people in Durham that, that would go to the games normally and they're sitting in there watching this entire thing be filmed. Um, but it is a, a super duper like sexual movie. And I don't think mm-hmm. I, I rewatched it for this for you guys. And I was like, God, I don't, all I remembered really was the scene, you know, where the bathtub water oh, washes yeah. out the candles. That was the only mm-hmm. memory I had of the movie. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And then I went back. And I was there's like, one or two scenes. I mean, that's <laughs> the first thing I texted yeah. Beth. Yeah. I was like, this movie is so horny. It is, mm-hmm. it is, it is. And as it's becoming a trademark here on, on our podcast, uh, now that we've broken down the movie, I'll break down the movie's plot for people that may not have seen it. No, no. Sorry, I, I keep jumping ahead to tell no, you guys like we do this, historical facts. We do this every time. Uh, just I forget. Movie. I always forget anyway. <laughs> um, Susan Sarandon is quite peculiarly a, a huge fan of baseball who every preseason um, picks one player that she's going to bone. Uh, and then she is like apparently like a good luck charm to that particular player. Uh, now, at the beginning of the season, you've got young Nuke, before we get his, but Tim Robbins plays this young pitcher um, who pitches like he screws, uh, kind of all over the place. Uh, and then they bring in a sort of veteran catcher, Kevin Costner, to kind of get Tim Robbins's head right. And Susan Sarandon is trying to pick between the two. She sits them down. She's like, one of y'all's gonna be my 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 bone train for <laughs> and like and Kevin Costner's like, I'm not interested. And then so she kind of like gets in with Tim Robbins, and that's kind of how the movie kicks off. But it's actually quite a little bit more complex than that as it goes on. It's quite a cool relationship movie. But one thing I think, Beth, that Will and I and and Ryan were all texting about, and we were kind of having trouble getting on board with it is the the young Tim Robbins as a sex, you know, like... It, like yeah. We feel like miscast is kind of what we feel. What is your view of the young, sexy Tim Robbins? It's so weird, too, because I, I think of Tim Robbins as um, a great actor, probably because of Shawshank Redemption. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was I, in that? I, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm watching him in this movie, and I was thinking that not that his acting wasn't great. You know, I don't, I actually don't buy him as a dumb guy because he's actually a really smart yeah. guy in real life. And so I didn't buy him as, as, as the dumb guy he was trying to play, but I also, I don't buy him as a pretty boy. I think he's kind of Tom Hanks esque, you know, he's got this sweetness about him, this kind of cute, cuteness about him, but never, he's not an, an Kevin Costner yeah. heartthrob, never. you know, he's no. not like, woo, yeah. I want to see this guy wear garters. Kevin. Yeah. Yes, so yes. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> but so yeah, Rose Kevin, goes in the front, big guy. <laughs> that's that's such part. a great like Kevin Costner is is, is nailing it uh, on this particular one. And the whole time I'm watching this movie, I was thinking I was like, who else? I was like, you know who would have been great in this was Kurt Russell. Just I could see totally see him in that yeah. Kevin Costner type of role, but. Who would know, you have cast pinpoint. as Tim Robbins? All right, everybody. Will, who would you have cast in the Tim Robbins Ooh. character instead of Tim Robbins? I'm trying to think, like, who was big at this time? Yeah, like, I, who, uh, I mean, Nick Cage, maybe? Ooh. I don't know. Um, Kevin Bacon. Oh. Kevin Bacon, there you go. Yeah, there you go. That's that, good. That he still good. has that everyman kind of quality. I can see but that. I don't buy him as a dumb guy either. Yeah. Like, uh, hold on. There was a there was another star that was hugely um Yeah, let me popular. let me pull my list of uh of hot dumb guys in uh <laughs> in yeah. the 80s. I, I have it somewhere. Um, um, you don't have that at the ready? <laughs> Charlie Sheen after the Wraith. I've got Ooh. it. Ooh, go back. So I think a better and and I got these two people confused um in the in the 80s, and I thought this guy was gonna be a huge star. Uh and then I don't know where he because he just kind of fell off the map, but I think a better version of Tim Robbins would have been Timothy Hutton. Timothy Hutton? Why is that name so familiar to me? Hang on. So he was, he, people thought he was going to be the next big thing in the 80s. The last movie I remember him in was the Meg Ryan movie, French Kiss. That's what I just had to look up to oh even remember God, yeah. his name. But he's kind of a cuter yeah, version of Tim oh, Robbins. Tim, you said Timothy Hutton. I was thinking Kevin Klein, like around the same time from like Fish Called Wanda. Oh, um, that's not bad, actually, because Kevin Klein is so charismatic, but can also play dumb, like Fish yeah. Wonder being a perfect example. <laughs> yep. Nice one, Will. I can go Fair with that one. <laughs> so, I, so we're all in agreement that basically it's a great movie, but Tim Robbins is weirdly miscast. But then at the same time, we have to also understand that this is also the movie where Timothy, Tim Robbins seduced Susan Sarandon for real and started their, their long relationship. <laughs> Yeah, yep. is that true? I was wondering if they had met before this movie or they'd met on this movie because she's quite a she's a few years older than. Yeah, yeah I think she's him, right? nine years older than he is, and they the the story is that this was their love story. This was where they oh, wow. they met, and it's it's also fascinating because I feel like on camera her chemistry is better with uh, Kevin Costner than it is with uh, one hundred. Well, come, yeah. come on, I mean, come on, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, one hundred percent. I, I actually, I got a question though about Susan Sarandon's character, um, right. which is what does she do? What is her job? What is her job? <laughs> I think what, what she is, won the lottery. What? what? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, at no point in the movie, I'm, I'm just spending the whole time like, how does she have a house? Like what? She doesn't work for the team. Like, so what yeah. does she do? There is a random line in the movie that tells you exactly what she does. She actually teaches English literature at yeah. the, uh, the, the part local time. Yes. Part-time right. English literature and composition. Uh, <laughs> part, a part-time English teacher could afford that house. Oh but my dude, God. This was made How in the eighties. In yeah. the eighties, oh you God. could work an average job, uh, you know, get minimum wage and you can get a two car garage and three kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Oh man. The old and watch American a whole dream. bunch of baseball. And watch a whole <laughs> bunch of baseball. Well, yeah, that's the part like as a as a woman, that's the part of the the movie that just feels so um odd and and very kind of cliche 80s female characters, you know, these yeah. these women who especially Annie's friend and I can't yeah. remember the name of that character who is just yeah. you know, they they just 
it's yeah. it just feels written from a male perspective you know it sure. feels written from the the male version of female sexuality and mm-hmm. then this whole idea sure. that uh that she somehow trained baseball players with her vagina. You know? yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, my miss is this is a film, movie she loves. She loves Bull Durham. It's one of her top. And um, and so like we, you know, because I was kind of getting into that with her as well. Because in in a way, I mean, we're talking about when you're looking at um, Dirty Dancing, how it sort of really does address. But this is from a women's written by women, a very great representation of a sexual awakening of a young girl becoming a young woman. But then I'm watching it and I go, I'm, I understand what you're saying, Beth, but also I'm sort of watching that Susan Sarandon's character is quite strong. She's quite mm-hmm. like sexually like confident. Um, yeah. She's the one in charge. She just, you know, flip this and you'd think it'd be an 80s movie as a guy saying between one of you two girls is who's going to get, who's going to get it. But she's the one that's in charge. And what's, I guess, what makes it interesting and why, spoiler alert, she ends up with Kevin Costner is that he's just not there to play that game. You know what right. I mean? It's like, yeah. in a way, he's like, this is kind of beneath you. It's beneath us. It's, yeah. I think he's we can far, do better. He's far too long in the tooth to be like playing games like that. And, you know, it goes through with his career and he's like, towards the end, spoiler alert, when they're like, hey, we're letting you go. And he's, he's like, but maybe there's this job uh, down the road that you can pick up this manager job. He's like, I'm, I'm just done, you know? Yeah. It just, almost, it almost though, in the, in that moment, you know, when they end up together, it almost feels like the man comes in to rescue her from her harlot ways. You know, it feels right. there's yeah. something about it that felt that. I, and I didn't feel that way when I f- first saw the movie in the, you know, the nineties or even the, the late eighties, I probably shouldn't have been watching this movie in the late eighties because I would have been in, you know, fifth and sixth grade, but um, it hit for, so, I, I rewatched it cause I knew that I was going to be with you guys. And it actually hit me differently, you know, as a woman in my late forties, there was something about it that didn't feel. And there's that one scene where they're all, all the dudes, all the guys, all the players, they're on the bus and they're going on their 12 day road trip to all of the different cities. And, and they're all sitting there and and Kevin Costner, it makes me giggle now because it's just such a weirdly acted scene where he's like, I played in the show once for 21 days. It was like the best (laughs) 21 days of my life. And they're like, tell us about the show. (laughs) It was like this really weird scene and I had forgotten about it. And I thought, what is, and I know they had to set it up. It's adorable though. It's, it's, it goes back to like, it goes back to like Tim Robinson's character. Sure. He's like a goofball and a doofus, but it's like, it's weirdly endearing. Like I didn't see it as, he didn't mm-hmm. take me out of anything. Like it just kind of, it kind of worked. Yeah. He's just so lanky. You know? Like when he's pitching, yeah. he's just got so much arms and legs. He does. It's like, okay. And he does that sort of like he breathes through his eyelids kind of thing. He does that look. My question is yeah, when he's throwing look. pitches, like, where is he looking? Like he's yeah. like looking <laughs> yeah. up and around. I'm like, where is he throwing? No wonder he can't throw a fucking bat- fastball down the pipe. Like he's just looking all around. <laughs> My favorite scene of the movie. I think it's a classic scene though for many people is um, when they're sort of having a chat on the dugout uh, about like he's breathing through his wrong eyelid and then another guy comes running up and then everyone comes running up and then eventually kind of like the assistant coach comes up and he's like, what's going on? He's like, well, he's, he's breathing out of his wrong eyelid. Uh, this guy's having this problem. None of us can figure out what to buy. Oh this my couple, God, that was the we're best. dealing with some serious shit here. Yeah, <laughs> that was like, the best. 
the best. <laughs> and then he gives them an example, like, well, what you should do is you should yeah. buy them. Candlesticks are always a good, always a good gift. And maybe right. if they're registered, if they're yeah. registered somewhere, get something, you know, place setting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great. The guy's like yeah. Coach Beard from Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So like the, that's like the, such a pivotal moment where they're actually all finally coming together as a team and you know working <laughs> through some shit. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that character, though, is always off to the side. He's always got those completely unintelligible things that he's just yelling at the team. As who? 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 Uh, Arliss? <laughs> you got there before I did. I was going to make yeah. an Arliss too. <laughs> Robert Wool. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. This is the point where, um, you know, before actually, before we get to it, why don't we talk about our also rans, uh, movies we almost picked. I'm really interested to hear because Will and, and Ryan, in this particular case, because Beth came out strong with these suggestions, I'm like, all right, let's do something different. What movies yeah. were you guys thinking about before we settled on the three that we settled on? You had mentioned, I think, in our uh, group chat, Talladega Nights. Was that one of them that you had mentioned? Yeah. And that was like the not not to date myself, but that was the first movie I owned on Blu-ray, Ooh. <laughs> and probably the only movie I own on Blu-ray. Sorry, Will. <laughs> you can I was start... gonna say, do you want to borrow? Do you want to borrow a cup? Um, <laughs> yeah. What uh, about you, Will? Uh, honestly, this this was one of the states I was kind of like dreading because I was looking at the list and I was like, oh, I don't know. The, my biggest example was was like. The documentary Jesus Camp, I guess, was like high on my list. Or I'm like, I, we could watch that, I guess. Uh, kind of bum everybody Again? out. But, uh, Again? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Every episode, I'm going to get us to watch it. No, um, but that was kind of like on my list. I was like, all right, I guess, I guess Jesus Camp. So I was yeah. so glad when Beth came in and like these movies came up. I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Like, so yes, much yeah. more. Such a better viewing experience. I was so happy. Yeah. yeah it was it was nice watching these without any stakes because when each of us pick mm. a movie, like there's a lot, <clears throat> there's a lot of emotion involved and there's a lot of history with that particular film. And uh it's it's it ends up being such a great debate. And a lot of times, you know, we've switched gears and we've picked each other's movies. So mm -hmm. to have this like the freedom to just watch these films objectively or subjectively, I don't know. And then just <laughs> figure it out from there was actually a weight off of my chest. I wasn't <laughs> scrambling throughout the week to like, ah, what movie am I going to pick? And how yeah. are these going to make me feel? And it was just fun to just watch them like as a, as a viewer who'd never seen them before. I think um, I was kind of like, Will, I was like, I was, I was unsure. I mean, I had a few that I was kind of circling, but again, I think I'm really glad that we got into this because this is now going to be the hardest point of the conversation is, is where are we going to land? on this shot in versus set in. And I, I, I'm willing to open up to you guys, but in my head, I think it comes down to The Last of the Mohicans versus Bull Durham. Mm -hmm. um, as great as Dirty Dancing is, you know, this is never a debate about which one's the yeah. best movie. I think that, yeah. you know, you could take the North Carolina out of Dirty Dancing and it would not affect it as much as if you took it out of, let's say, The Last of the Mohicans. It's just, it's dripping through it. I mean, it makes me want to move to North Carolina. <laughs> it's yeah. just, As you should. Everyone should. It's it the greatest so, state ever. So beautiful. But then, at the same time, Bill Durham has done the same thing. Like, what Beth was saying is they, they shot in all these actual ballparks, all these actual towns all over North Carolina. It's not just stuck in one place. It is shot in, a shot in Durham. It's, you know, the only thing that's kind of off a little bit is like an accent here or there. So I'm, I'm opening it up to you guys. What are you guys thinking about, you know, putting an official stamp on the North Carolina movie? Yeah. 
I'm going to go with Bull Durham just because it's in the name. Obviously, it tells you it tells you does what it says on the tin, as we say. And <laughs> so it just, if it was it's, la- it's last of the Charlotte Hornets or something, you'd be like, oh, that's it. You know? <laughs> well, hang on. Let me write that down. Write that down. Um, <laughs> versus Dirty Dancing with Wolves. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> or dirty excuse me dirty dances with wolves dirty dances um, with wolves yeah. you son of a <laughs> I, I, I mean i i mean listen i absolutely loved loved last the mohicans i'm glad i kind of filled that blind spot in my in my manoverse if you will but i i had more fun watching old durham as a film and it made me feel like i was actually in that small town in North Carolina, like going to these games, going on tour with this team, banging Susan Sarandon. It all <laughs> just felt so visceral and real. I felt like I was in that bathtub with them. <laughs> <laughs> Will, where are you landing on this one? I'm interested. Yeah, because it's it's so hard not to pick last in the weekends because I love it so much. Because I agree with everything you're saying. It The feel, the look of it, like it is like an advertisement, you know, for the state, but I might also have to go with Bull Durham. My, my only, the only thing that was keeping me from, or just holding me back is, uh, I could tell when Nor- uh, last of Eakins took place. Like I, I knew that time period. Bull Durham, does it take place in the fifties, the eighties? I actually can't tell because the cars are all different. Susan Sarandon seems like she's from the fifties. Kevin Costner seems like he's from the eighties. So I don't, I'm confused about the timeline, but it, it's regardless. It, it's shot there. It's filmed. It's got the feel of like the towns and stuff. I might have to go with Bull Durham as well. Uh, I know what you mean about it being timeless. The only time it feels no. like a nineties movie is at the end when Tim Robbins is in the show and he's dressed. So yes. He's got but the sunglasses and the, this, the same the same could be said about Dirty Dancing too. The whole time I'm watching this movie, I know, like she says it briefly in the beginning, what year it takes place, but it could also, it could, it also felt like it could have take, taken place in the '80s or the yeah, right. '70s. Like it was that's also because also of the song was going to feel. It is like yeah, it is a, yeah, it is yeah. kind of set in that time period of it, be it late '50s or early '60s. I can't remember, but I think it was the '60s. Um, yeah, that makes but sense. It's it's towards, 1963. A year ago. 63, yeah. Towards the end, there's one 80s song as Patrick Swayze's character's leaving. And then, of course, there's the song at the very end, which they're all singing along to, which is like, mm-hmm. so that's, I had the exact same thought of going, but wow, now, it's interesting because it's an 80s movie and a 60s movie. You're now, which thinking had the of the better... song, sh- you're thinking of She's Like the Wind, which is Patrick Swayze singing. No way! Beth, yes. you're a genius at this stuff. I love it! <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say... I was going to say, which has the better soundtrack, Dirty Dancing or uh, Last of the Mohicans? But I think you just answered that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does Last of the Mohicans have Patrick Swayze singing? No, it does not. Um, no. Disqualified. Now, Beth, uh, you get a vote. I'm interested to see where you land on this one. At the moment, we've got two for Bull Durham. I'm still undecided. Where are you? Uh, Bull Durham definitely feels North Carolina because of all of the... Uh, all of the the spaces, the the ballparks. Um, Last of the Mohicans, you guys are right. It does feel like a commercial. It could be an ad for visit visiting the Blue Ridge Mountains because you, as soon as you see it, you want to be there. Um, I have trouble not thinking when because the first movie when Ollie texted me and said. Just don't think about it. Just text me the first movie you think about when you think of North Carolina. And the first one I think is Dirty Dancing, which is insane. I know because like Ollie said, when you pull North Carolina out of it, 
even though it's not supposed to be set in North Carolina, it's supposed to be in the Catskills, you pull North Carolina yeah. out of it, it doesn't necessarily change the movie at all. But because we have the Dirty Dancing Festival here, <laughs> because it's such mm. a part of, it's like a bragging right maybe for people in North Carolina that Dirty Dancing, this classic movie was shot here. Um, my heart goes to Dirty Dancing because I it's the first thing I think of when I think of films here. But there have been so many uh, fantastic films shot here with like all I know I haven't gone to my almost ran um, list yet, which I will get to after Ollie votes. But I have to say I have to say Dirty Dancing just because that's where my heart goes. OK, now give us that's great. Now give us give us your also runs as well. OK. So Talladega Nights, that one is is great, but it's based on, that's kind of the parody of Days of Thunder with yeah, Tom yeah. Cruise, which was also shot here. And like, oh the cool, man, I could have picked that. The cool <laughs> thing about um, Days of Thunder is Tony Scott, the director of Days of Thunder, met his wife on uh, that shoot. And she was a former Miss North Carolina USA. And they ended up getting married. They have twin sons. Um, she actually still has a, a place here because her family's from here. Um, I grew up with her. But they uh, they all met on the film, which is um, kind of cool that he kind of fell in love with a, a local actress. And then she became kind of a Hollywood actress. She was one of the fembots in Austin Powers, by the way. Um, as as. <laughs> As a happily married man of 15 years and your ex-work husband, I'm so attracted to you right now. He says that to me anytime I mention Tony Scott. <laughs> <laughs> the other also ran that's really obscure, but that I would tell every single person to watch is this movie that came out. I think it was in like 1980. It's called The Private Eyes and it stars Tim Conway and Don Knotts. It was shot at the Biltmore House. Um, it's this hilarious whodunit film that's just Tim Conway and Don Knotts at their best. Um, it, it is so watchable and it's so funny and the characters are, are so absurd, but the Biltmore House plays such a big part. It's like a character itself in the film. Um, so it's you, you should absolutely watch it. It's hard to find. I found a link to it. Uh, I own the VHS version of it, but I don't uh -huh. have a VHS player <laughs> anymore. <laughs> but it's hard to find right now. But it's uh, one of uh, it's one of just one of my favorites. Also, Shallow Howl, which is supposed to take oh. place, I think, in like Wisconsin. But it was shot here in Charlotte and in Concord, which is my hometown where I was uh, where I was born and raised. And my nice. um, best friend and uh, who was the maid of honor in my wedding she had a small little character role in that film uh and she had like a talking part and, and in Helper. the director's comp say what my little friend Gwyneth Paltrow she had a couple of lines in that movie yeah it was, it was yeah. Gwyneth I know she was my roommate once um but if you watch the director's commentary which you know if you have a film you need to watch the director's commentary always she he actually says remember that name Kelly McCrory uh because of her little scene because she did such a great job in the scene so nice. that's that is wild. Uh, Private Eyes will have you back on the show next year for yes. a, a return to see you. Because <laughs> uh, after all that being said, I it was my I'm going with kind of like Beth said with instinctual is that when I was watching the movies, it, I really had to sort of talk with my wife afterward and talk to myself. But I Last the Mohicans was so because it is the verite nature of it, the fact it's shot in the, the everything of it that I'm like, even though it's not North Carolina, I'm going to land on Last of the Mohicans. But I think that's fair because, mm -hmm. two, you know, two votes for Bull Durham, you know, because you just, at the same time, it is 
it is so close on it that I think every one of these movies getting a nod, I think is the right way of it. But, um, you know, this is America and you've got more votes uh, and there is, uh, <laughs> that's just the way it works, or at least it's supposed to work <laughs> when it comes to voting. Um, there's no electoral college in this particular podcast, so everybody gets an equal vote. Um, so in this particular case, then, we're going to land on Bull Durham being the official yeah. movie of North Carolina until, I guess, we watch Private Eyes next year and then bring Beth Jot onto the show. And, and again, his name isn't Bull Durham. We're sure of that. 100 <laughs> percent sure. Damn it. Who, who but, am uh, I thinking of? <laughs> um, all right. Now, before we end, we have to choose the, the state that we're going to next. And I've been circling a bunch, but honestly, it was you guys jokey texting with me last night. We're doing it. Oh, we're, oh no. We're going <laughs> Illinois. We're going yes. to Illinois. Yeah, there's some bangers for this. Ooh. We're very excited. I've got a couple I think I'm sick. Oh, man. So at the moment, we've got the official movie of North Carolina being Bull Durham. Next week, we'll be tackling Illinois. But first, I want to say, that Beth has something to say. Go for it, Beth. You're holding your hand. I'm like, I'm raising my hand. Can I, can I come back on whenever um, you guys choose to do South Carolina? Yes. A hundred percent. Okay. Dan and Dan. <laughs> um, Beth, thank you so much for being on the show. You brought so much to it. It's brilliant. Your movie knowledge is excellent. Uh, can't wait to have you back on the show. And to any of you who have joined the show after listening to me and Beth talking about the podcast this morning on the radio, welcome to the party. Like, subscribe, share, tell your friends. And thank you very much for listening to the United States of a Movie podcast. Hello, everyone. Producer Will here, and I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Writers Guild of America strike. Here at the United States of a Movie podcast, it's pretty obvious we love movies of all different types, whether they're heist films, historical epics, zany comedies, or stone-cold classics like The Wraith. But all those movies have one thing in common. They were written by real people. Yes, even the space alien who wrote The Wraith was just a humble extraterrestrial scribe who simply wanted to share high art with us lower life forms. But right now, the livelihoods and careers of movie and television writers is at stake. Writers are forced to work at drastically reduced hours and reduced pay, all while being asked to work harder than ever before. These are not millionaires. Screenwriters are middle-class to low-income people, and many of them are on assistance programs. Writing is becoming a gig like rideshare or food delivery services, all while studios and streamers have been posting record profits. And we don't even have time to get into the debate about artificial intelligence. If you love movies and television and want to learn how you can help, there are several ways. One way is to donate to the Entertainment Community Fund. It's an organization set up to help those struggling in the entertainment industry, and with production shutting down, many people could use the help. You can find them at entertainmentcommunity.org. The other way is by going to social media, Twitter, Instagram, and such, and looking for users with the I stand with the WGA profile picture. Trust me, writers are more than happy to answer any questions and let you know how you can help. Even a retweet or a share goes a long way. If you're so inclined, there are many snack and lunch funds you can donate to that are set up to help striking writers. Just look for those supporting the strike, and they'll point you in the right direction. You can also reach out to me. I'm Entitled Willennial, that's Entitled underscore Willennial, 
on all the social media platforms except for Facebook. You won't find me there. And I'll be more than happy to answer any questions you have. These writers are literally fighting for the future of movies and television, and they can use your help.